the Gentiles been proven to be condemned under the wrath of God. That's in 1.18 through 32. But in 2, 1 through 29, the Jews as well. They have been shown to be under the wrath of God. So even a Jew can't hide behind his nationality. Jew can't hide behind his possession of the law. Jew can't hide behind his, his circumcision. No, but the Jew's commandment-breaking life displays that he too, just like the Gentile, deserves the wrath of God. Now, one would think that this wholesome diet of humbling pie that Paul has served up in the first two chapters would produce a, a sweet response of humility in the Jew. But that's not what happens. Instead, snake-like, it's, it's secreted, this good, humble pie, instead into a poisonous response, not of humility, but of impiety. Because look, in 3.1, the Jew is angry that the apostle says that, that you're under God's wrath, just like the Gentile. He, he bursts out in 3.1, well, then what advantage do I have then of being a Jew? And that's where now in 3, 3 through 8, Paul anticipates three venomous objections that strike against the character of God himself. He calls a Jew himself. And he knows that the, the Pharisee's Jewish mind thrashes about to avoid being lumped in there with the condemned Gentile dogs. So here, Paul, in 3 through 8, he engages in kind of a debate. It's a it's an imaginary Jewish objector that Paul is volleying back and forth with. And we're going to see here in exposition, we'll see three logical strikes that are made against God by the Jew who's really upset that he's been called condemned like the Gentiles. And if you're going to follow along with me, you've got to engage in real cerebral concentration going to tie the mind tight here. And then, having given these three lines of application, Lord willing, we'll have five lines of application after the three lines of exposition. So, come on with me first. First, come on with me to the first line of, of exposition, that is a strike against God's faithfulness. The strike against God's faithfulness, and that's in verses 3 and 4. Look what it says there. What then? You hear the Jew arguing. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And Paul responds, may it never be. So just, just consider here, immediately following Paul's claim that, okay, as a Jew, in verses 1 and 2, you do have the advantage. You're a Jew. You, you have the scriptures. That's a privilege that you have. And then here comes that first poisonous objection striking at God's faithfulness. In verse 3, it says there, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And the Jew is basically saying this. But Paul, we do have the scriptures as our possession. And it's those very scriptures, those very oracles of God that are filled with promises that he's made us to be his favorites. He, 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 he's promised he's going to protect us and prosper us, like in Genesis 17, in the scriptures. God has said, I've made an everlasting covenant, Abraham, with you and your seed, 
You shall be my people, you Jews, and I will be your God. And even the Jew could say, in, in, in Isaiah 49, God promised that as a, as a mother nursing can't forget her child, so I'll never forget you, Israel, you, the Jewish people. So, so, so Paul, in, in the scriptures, we have the promise of God's faithfulness. He's going to protect us, prosper us. We're his faiths. And therefore, God has a moral obligation to be faithful to his word. And if he's not faithful to us Jews in saving us, then God is made to be a liar. Because if you say that the Jews are properly to follow Jesus and only Jesus, and we're condemned if we don't, then you're nullifying the faithfulness of God. See, the, the issue he's addressing here is if some didn't believe and the Jew is arguing here, Paul, look, God said we're his faves, but clearly the bulk of the Jews have rejected your gospel. The bulk of the Jews have rejected the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. Look back in Jerusalem on crucifixion weekend. They were the ones, the Jews in mass, said crucify him. And they're the ones who are saying your gospel is foolishness. So, Paul... If Jesus is truly the Messiah, then this would be a great moral embarrassment to God. For if the Jews, God's faves, have failed to recognize Jesus as Messiah, then God has been asleep at the switch, and he hasn't been faithful. That idea of being asleep at the switch, it's how railroads used to have at a fork a switchman back in the day, and you go to the north track, which would be a safe course. But if you go to the south track, you're going to collide. And when a switchman saw a train coming, he was awake, and he pulled the switch, and he would direct the train safer to the north track. God's been asleep at the switch in history then. Because he should have had Israel, if he's going to protect them and prosper them, to turn in the northward direction of believing Jesus and being saved. But you're saying, God let us go the southward direction and we're on collision with God's wrath. This nullifies the faithfulness of God in his promise to keep us safe. Because in Passover Jerusalem, we see that those who shouted crucify him won the day. And this nullifies God's promise that we'll be his people who will be protected. So this is the, the strike against God's faithfulness here in verse 3. But Paul gives kind of a disinfecting correction here. Look what Paul says there in verse 3. May it never be, Paul's arguing against a Jew. Paul is saying, no way, God forbid. See here, Paul dismisses any insinuation that God's not faithful with a sense of disgust. He's saying this is the, the height of impiety. This is blasphemous even to contemplate such a thing. He says to the Jew, barricade that avenue of thinking. Put a skull and a crossbones on that door. Don't go down that corridor that says God isn't faithful. It would be like this if you went to downtown Grand Rapids to a high-rise apartment and there was a crime scene. There's a, a, a woman, she's dead on the floor and there's a bloody knife laying alongside of her. And standing there is her father and also her husband. Now, you may, in that crime scene situation, contemplate that either of those two could possibly be suspects of the crime.
crime of murder. And that would be a legitimate contemplation. But Paul is saying, no, 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 not, not so. Not so when you come to a moral crime scene and you see that, say, in history, the Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And for you at that point to suspect God as being the, the culprit and the criminal here, Paul says, no, no, no. That's an irreverent blasphemy. Never entertain the idea that when sin arises on the scene, God is to blame. I mean, that's what Adam did in Genesis 3 at the first scene, eating the forbidden fruit. And there was forbidden fruit juice running down his cheek. And who does Adam blame? You, God, you. You, you gave me this woman. No, no, we're not to go there. Look what it says there in verse 4. God be true and every man a liar. Kind of echoing Psalm 116 where Psalmwriter says, all men are liars. See, when there's a crime scene, we never put the blame at God's door. Blame is always to come at man's door. So when in Jerusalem, the crime scene, when the Jews said crucify Jesus, it's not God's fault. Whenever there is a historical event that seemingly contradicts God's word, we have a holy obligation to refuse to charge God with a crime. We've got to look elsewhere for the criminal. And look how it says there in verse 4. If some disbelieved, okay, Paul will say it's true that some didn't believe the gospel, but look, we find that the 11 apostles, all Jews, they did believe. Some Jews, the faiths believed. Also on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews believed. Look how God is keeping them. Even Paul himself, he was a Jew, and Paul himself had believed. And even he's writing to the church in Rome, and there are Roman Christians there who are Jews, and they have believed. You see, God has kept his promise to Israel. Israel has had a remnant that was saved. Even when he gets to chapter 9, he will say, not all Israel is Israel. And the promises God made to Israel, like Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Esau was a Jew in bloodlines, but there's only the remnant that really have that ultimate promise, like an egg yolk and the outer. It's only the yolk that all, only true Israel is Israel. God has kept his promise to Israel. So look at the quote there from Psalm 51 that you may be justified when you speak and you may be righteous when you judge. It's a quote from Psalm 51. And what, what is Psalm 51? It's David saying, I'm the sinner, Lord, not you. Against you, you only have I done evil, have I sinned. And Paul is saying here that whenever there is a moral crime, man is to be saying, I'm the one. I have sinned in this situation. And so, we see on the last day, the analysis is going to be that every sinner, whether Jew or Gentile, like it says in Philippians 3, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And the fact that I didn't believe that Jesus Christ was Lord, if I'm a Jew, it's not his sin, it's not God's sin, it's my sin. I am the culprit. I am 
the criminal, like it says in Philippians 2. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. God will be glorified in this, but man will be deemed the sinner in this, the criminal. So, so there's that strike against God's faithfulness. Secondly, consider, I promised three heads of exposition, consider a strike at God's righteousness. Strike at God's righteousness. There's kind of a debate going on here. In 5 and 6 it says, the Jew now responding, but, 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 but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Then Paul comments, says, I'm speaking in human terms, he says here. You see, there's this poisonous objection. Okay, Paul, you're saying that, that my sin there, my sin of unbelief, is used to enhance God's glory. You're saying that, that when I confess on Judgment Day that I didn't believe, and it's my sin, like it says in Philippians 3, that every knee will bow, every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. You're saying then that my unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, and, and this will enhance God's glory. And how is God righteous in that? If he's gaining a surplus from my sin, how can he then, if I've advantaged him, how can he take hold of me who's just trumpeted his praise on that judgment day, then grab me and bind me hand and foot, and look, it says there in verse 5, and inflicts wrath on me and cast me into the lake of fire. How is that just? Even look what it says in 2.5 of Romans, kind of harking this idea. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the Jew is arguing, if I and my unbelief will one day pay God the ultimate compliment, you were right, I was wrong, and God is glorified, doesn't that mean that God kind of owes me something? Doesn't God owe me, owe me his kindness instead of giving to me his wrath? This is, the, again, that poisonous objection, like a cobra striking against God again. And Paul brings a, a disinfecting correction there in verse 6. Again, Paul says, may it never be, no way. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? You see, he even says, I, I speak in human terms. It's like he's apologizing here that such a thought would ever flow from his pen. He says, I'm, I'm speaking as a man. And what he means by that is we as men are, are prone to be smart-alecky and lippy in the presence of God, to call into question the righteousness of God, blame-shifting from our own sin to put it on God. And the argument is kind of expressing that, you realize it is impossible that God would not be righteous. It's, it's impossible that God would ever have a blemish on his integrity, because if you did that, then that would disqualify God from being fit to judge the world. And every Jew knows that God will judge the world. Father Abraham said in the suburbs of Sodom, when the concern was that God was going to destroy Sodom, Abraham says this, But Lord, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And every Jew says, yeah, what am I doing? Suggesting that God could be 
unfit to judge or to be not having credibility or, or integrity to do so. You see, such a suggestion is irreconcilable with what a Jew, a Jew knows to be certain and indisputable. And so Paul, with his disinfecting correction, shows it's absurd as well as irreverent to justify ourselves and try to impugn God. It would be like, oh, let's say there was a criminal who'd stolen from a bank and the police arrested him, handcuffed him, put him in the back seat, and while the policeman is driving to the jail from the back seat, the criminal says, you know, officer, without people like me, you'd be out of a job. And so you are obliged to let me go because my crime is bringing advantage to you. And Paul says, it's just ridiculous the way that you're charging God with unrighteousness. So, again, three strikes they're giving. The cobra strike of strike at God's faithfulness. Secondly, strike at God's righteousness. Now, thirdly, by exposition, consider a strike at God's holiness. That's in 7 through 8. You can hear the Jew talking again now. But if through my lie the wrath of God abounded to his glory as a sinner, and Paul says, oh, wait a minute now. Why not just say, as we are slanderously reported to say, let us do evil that good may come. They, their condemnation is just. So, so we, we see that this poisonous subjection, which kind of referring back to verse 4, God being a liar, the, the, the sin of speaking falsely against Christ abounds, brings surplus to the glory of God. It's really the same word that's used in John 6.13 where we talked even in the Sunday school class about the lad's lunch of loaves and fishes overflowed to 5,000 or abounded to 5,000. The Jew is saying this, well, if my sin overflowed or abounded or enhanced God's glory, uh, then, then, then why am I being charged? Why would I be accused of crimes that couldn't be keeping the favor of God? And he might even think in his mind, for the wrath of man praises God. So Paul says, okay, what you're basically saying is, let us do evil that, that good might come. That's what the opposers of Paul had that slogan. They would put it in Paul's mouth as, look at 6.1, we'll talk about when people speak about justification by faith and not by works. Paul says, what shall we say? That we should sin that grace might abound? That's what the Jew is basically saying. Well, I can, I can sin against God and grace should abound. Paul is basically saying, uh, this, is, this is antinomianism. Having a disregard for God's holy laws, no matter if I break them. And by the way, there are many who have this mindset that would say, I can sin against God. No worries. As a Christian, even, I can go on sinning, and it just brings a surplus to God's glory. It just magnifies His grace. And the disinfecting correction is their judgment or their condemnation is just as sloganeers back in the first century, or even now in the 21st century, when they say, let us sin that grace might abound, the sloganeers pervert the providence of God 
and the grace of God, and they use it as a license to sin. You ever hear people who hear of God's grace and use it as a license to sin? Paul says, a curse beyond them. Because Paul is saying, of course God is in the business of extracting out of moral wickedness grace for himself. He always does that. Like in Genesis 50, we see that Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit and told a false story about it all. But we see that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God always takes evil and brings good out of it, but it's a perverse evil nonetheless what happens. It's like Judas, remember? Judas betrayed and he used Jesus for pieces of silver, but somebody say, but, but even Judas, okay, he did a good thing. Because in the long run, it brought glory to Jesus and redeemed his elect. So it's okay to sin, because God will make grace abound. Yeah, but the reality is, for Judas, Jesus says in Matthew 26, it would be good for him if he'd never been born. And he ended up under God's wrath. So even Paul's blaspheming and persecuting the church. Yes, God used that for his glory to save many people, but it was still a very sinful thing. Yes, it's true that God always uses a mysterious alchemy where he can take evil things and he can work them into good things, but we should never use that truth as a license to sin. Instead, we are to, in our sanctification, seek to perfect holiness in the fear of God. And anyone who abuses God's grace and uses that as a motive to sin undermines God's holiness, and they're slated for wrath. As old Thomas Watson says, there's a difference between poison in a man and poison in a snake. What's the difference? Between poison in a man and poison in a snake. Well, when there's poison in a man, that man is fevered and shivering, right? But when there's poison in a snake, he's happily slithering. And likewise, when there's sin in a Christian, he's fevered and shivering with a sense of guilt. And he's uneasy because the Spirit of God dwells in him. But if there's sin in a pretend Christian, he's slithering along happily. It doesn't even bother him. And so this is what Paul is saying. No true Christian says, let us sin that grace might abound. Let us not be pretend Christians. So, 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 that's our exposition. Those three headings, a strike at God's faithfulness, a strike at God's righteousness, and a strike at God's holiness. Now, with that exposition in mind, come on with me to draw a few lines of application. And there are really three words, four, well, we'll see how many words about themes. First of all, mental responsibility. There's a word here about mental responsibility. Like I said, we really got to have cerebral concentration sometimes when we work in the scriptures, right? Did you see it here? You had to think, didn't you? You had to really tie it up and say, well, there's logic going on here. And I know it's tough when we live in a TikTok generation of 30-second reels. It can make us reluctant to think hard. And we can come to church and say, Pastor, 
I don't come to church to think. I come to church to feel. Uh, appeal to me emotionally. Don't appeal to me mentally. Do you see how opposed this is to biblical Christianity? Biblical Christianity calls us to think. Just notice the tightly reasoned logic of inspired scripture. Sometimes it's like a puzzle. How, how does this all fit together? This is the, the meat and the vegetables of the word of God and the way that it comes. It's, it's not the, the cotton candy of drama. Why can't we have a drama on the stage? That'll attract more people. Or how about the licorice of entertainment? Or how about the ice cream of video clips that we can show up on the screen that kind of dovetail with the sermon? Or maybe the, the caramel corn of feel-good sermonettes? No, no, no. Biblical Christianity feeds and exercises and strengthens what? Primarily the mind. Like in 1 Peter 1 where the apostle says, come on, gird up the loins of your mind. Like when the Jews were getting ready to roll in Egypt to head out, they had to gird up, tie up tight, because we're ready. Or even in Romans 12, 2, it says, be not transformed, be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to think as Christians. We need to be anchored in truth and be not tossed to and fro by our emotions. So, so listen, a faithful ministry, that's echoing the Apostle Paul's ministry, it's going to challenge and stretch our minds. So when we come here and sit in the burgundy chairs, we've got to refuse to be dumbed down to our emotion-driven world in 2024. And so if, we, if you sit here and it's an exposition of Romans or it's, Pat, it's Pastor Matt who's doing an exposition of Ephesians and you sit there in your chair and you say, you know, I really got to concentrate here. In fact, I'm kind of getting a mental Charlie horse listening to this sermon. That's okay. It's like in the physical realm. You, you have to get a, get a workout, you're in the weight room maybe and you feel the burn and that brings physical health. Well, likewise, when we feel the burn between our ears, that brings spiritual health. Even look at that passage here in 2 Peter 3, talking about Paul's, 3.16 of 2 Peter, about Paul's letters. He says, in these letters, there are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, Knowing this before, and be on guard, lest you be carried away by the air of unprincipled men, and you fall from your steadfastness, but instead grow in grace. How are we going to grow in grace? It's by working out, by using our minds that we might be strengthened in the inner man. So there's a word here, I think, in this passage about mental responsibility, because we've got to think. Secondly, I think there's a word here about sovereign alchemy. Word about sovereign alchemy. I used that earlier. Alchemy is really the kind of a pretend and even yet undiscovered ability to transform base metals like tin or iron into really valuable metals like gold and silver. You see, God does have the ability to take base and sinful deeds 
and to transform them into good and wonderful outcomes. Just remember that. God does have the ability to do that. He did that even with Joseph's brothers and their terrible sin. They meant it for evil. God sovereignly works it out so that it results in good. That's true. God can make sins and lies abound to his glory. And this is God's business because he does make the wrath of God, the wrath of man praise him, Psalm 76. And think of it. This is a comforting truth that's unwise for us to pass by without little bit of refreshing pausing and, and, and musing here, especially in times when evil men strut about and mock God. Did you hear that account a couple of weeks ago about how people who were protesting abortion and how they were arrested for protesting abortion? I mean, this is a, this is a good thing. And now they're facing a, a 10 to 12 year sentence. And we think this is, this is a terrible thing. This is a, a very evil thing in our culture and society. And we, we see this happening all the time with leaders in our society. There are presidents and governors who, who lie whole smoke screens of conspiracies, who, who murder unborn infants with their policies, who mutilate children with their views of sexuality, who, who smuggle critical race theory into the public school, who use Robin Hood redistribution of wealth, stealing from others, and the righteous onlooker sees these things, and aren't we, we're vexed, we're frustrated. We see that, that public polls show that these leaders get sympathy, like even think of our own state and our own governor. She's being fawned over. She's getting away with it. What do we do when we're so vexed about this? There's a sedative here in this passage. And that is, look, it's, it's all going to abound to God's glory in the end, on the last day. Relax, relax. So, beloved, we can be patient. It's true. The, man, the wrath of man shall praise God. And Pharaoh, in his hardening, he showed that when God swallowed up the Egyptian military in the Red Sea. Or even Haman, he wanted to destroy the Jews, but God was glorified by Jehovah's sweet victory in the end. Even Pilate stood there on his porch in his false piety, washing his hands. And we say, how can he do that? We know that at the resurrection, and on the last day, God is going to be glorified, and everybody's going to be singing praise to his name. All things will abound to God's glory. So relax, relax when we think of God's sovereign alchemy over everything. That's true in history, but it's not just true in things political, it's also true in things spiritual as well. God does make evil to abound for good. Joseph's brothers. I mean, think of how vexed Joseph was. I mean, he was in that pit, shouting up, get me out of here! And he didn't. Then he was in Pharaoh's house, get me out of here! And God didn't. And he's in prison, get me out of here! It's like that, that oyster who has there that, that irritating intrusion grain of sand that's so 
disturbing, but the result of it is, what, a really shimmering pearl at the end. And, and so it is that the Lord has these, these intrusions and grains of sand that irritate us. Like even, 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 even the fall of man and, and, and the devil's malice and man's treason, even that evil intrusion results in God being able to display the splendor of his stooping down and condescending and sacrificially loving men by sending his son. It's this shimmering pearl of great price that we see now, even though all this sin took place. There's a, there's a sovereign alchemy in all of this. And even the idea of our sin, Paul's going to get to Romans chapter 7, where, where the law comes and coveting, uh, sin becomes utterly sinful. When it says, do not covet, I covet it all the more. Even all these sins stirred up in my life are good because it shows me the mirror of my evilness. And I say, what a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me? You see, even our sin is used for God's glory. And even, even in the Christian life, there can be sins in our lives that still stay. And the idea of our uh, battling still in our, in our lives with, with uh, the idea of I, I can still struggle with drunkenness, maybe, somewhat. Like even Mike Waters, I just saw uh, on Facebook, uh, just, uh, he was reminiscing the anniversary of his being converted over at the mission in Holland here, when he was involved in drunkenness and in, in other kinds of immorality. And the idea of it, even sometimes that battle still goes on in the life of a Christian. When I would do good, evil is right there with me. I don't do the good that I would do, but the evil that I wouldn't do, that I do, what a wretched man am I. And we see even we can still in our own Christian life, when we still struggle, have that comforting contemplation that even in this sin, it will abound in glory to God. But let me just say this to you. It's true, yeah, God is in the business of changing swamp water into the finest wine. But don't be a snake about it. Lovers, don't say, oh, then let us sin that grace might abound. I'll just keep on sinning. Because if you act like a snake about it, then again, you go back to Watson who says, sin in a man, or poison in a man is different than poison in a snake. If you're sinning and you're thinking, I can keep sinning that grace might abound, then you are just happily slithering. And you are not guiltily shivering like a true Christian does if he's battling with sin. So, so there is so sovereign alchemy here. But come on, thirdly, thirdly. Thirdly, consider in this passage, there's also irreverent impiety here. Irreverent impiety. What I'm suggesting is we ought to beware of the haughty heart and mind that, that thinks accusingly and sacrilegiously about God and his actions. That's what the Jew is doing in this passage here. Paul is speaking to an imaginary Jew, and three times the Jew forges on the anvil of his mind with the hammer of his thinking thoughts that are an irreverent insult to God. And three times Paul rebukes it. May it never be! May, may it never be! Because the idea comes out that God is an unfaithful liar. That's what's said in 
3 and 4. And then in 5 and 6, it says, God is an unrighteous manipulator and saddest. God is using my sin for, for his good. I still remember a National Geographic where you had the killer whale, orca, playing with this sea pup. You ever seen that one? Just playing sadistically with a sea pup out in the water before it tears it and, and eats it up. That, that's what God is, just playing with us in our sin. Or the idea that God is an unholy dabbler with sin. See, we, we need to understand this because there are times when we're getting maybe chastised by the providence of God and God's working things out in our lives. We need to be careful that we don't take up an attitude of irreverent piety like Job did amidst, remember Job had the sufferings and out of those sufferings are forged these, these sinful words from Job kind of accusing God and it comes to a crescendo in Job 31, 35 where Job basically says, I want my adversary to give me an answer to my problems. He's pointing at God as being unjust. You are my adversary. But after he comes to his senses, after God says, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? In Job 42, 3, Job says, I spoke, but I put my hand over my mouth. So I spoke about things that are too wonderful for me when I looked at my situation and I accused you of evil. So, so, think of this. When, when God deals us a blow providentially, and it brings bitter thoughts, like maybe, maybe you've had a job loss and you've got five children. How could you do this to me, God? Or maybe you had this relationship with this wonderful person and God broke up that relationship and you can be angry accusing God. Or maybe you had an athletic injury at a very strategic point in your life. Or maybe now, maybe, maybe even you're married to this spouse. I'm just saying, when, when we're in the hands of God and he's working things out in our lives, we, we, we can't be like Jonah, who in Jonah 4 said, I have good reason to be angry. Lord, I'm angry at you even to the point of death. What does Paul say? Meganoitoi in Greek. God forbid. Don't, don't talk like that against God. And so we see that God uses these irritating grains in the oyster of our life, in the muscle of our life, for the purpose of bringing about a pearl. Even Jacob, remember when the whole Joseph thing? Remember when Joseph heard that Joseph was dead, seeing the bloodied coat of many colors, what did Jacob say? Lord, all these things are against me. Job spoke. Jacob spoke too quickly because he realized that God was bringing about a beautiful sunset through his life. The pearl that Joseph was still alive. It was really all these things were being worked out. God was causing all things to work for his good and God's glory. Hodge says this, it's a mark of genuine piety to be disposed always to justify God and to condemn ourselves. Keep that in mind when God is about this business of his, of his sovereign alchemy. And even just, just one thing here too, I was upstairs with Ben, 
and Zeke. They're dealing with young people in the Sunday school class. And maybe in a Sunday school class that, I don't know, maybe you're dealing with Pharaoh, and it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but it says, but God hardened his heart. And you may have some cheeky, <laughs> maybe even lippy teenager saying, well, God really was just using Pharaoh, and Pharaoh didn't have any choice because God hardened his heart. There's a point where you say, stop, don't, don't even go there. Just, just bar the door to that kind of thinking. God be true, and every man a liar. Maybe you think of the idea of, you think God is just playing when it comes to history and, and things and sin. God just allows sin because he's playing games. Listen, you think God is playing games with sin? I want you to come with me to Golgotha and his beloved son hanging on that cross saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Consider the heart of the Father and what he sees in the death of his son. Why? Because of sin. Why am I forsaken? Why am I going through the horrors of hell right now? And put your hand over your mouth and say, God ain't playing around with sin because it cost him the blood of his own son. But, but come on with me, quickly. Just consider the idea of pragmatic morality. Pragmatic morality. Just again, think of living by the idea of let us do evil that good may come. We, we, we can't have this kind of a mindset. Someone says, well, today, I'm, I'm going to have an abortion because, well, I want to finish my degree and I want to be able to have a solid family life, and in the long run, it'll be good to me and my family, and it'll construct a better society. We're going to do good, or do evil, that good may come. No, we can't have that kind of pragmatism. We must always do what God calls us to do, do what God tells us to do. To obey is better than to sacrifice. And even today, I think of how, oh, talk about this spouse that you've given me. You realize some people are very frustrated with this spouse that you've given me. And how there are people who will say, well, that husband you have, you're right. He's, he's, he's not supportive of you. Your marriage is miserable. Uh, just leave the marriage. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. And even if it's evil, God, that's okay. You, you can do evil and God will result it in Evil and God resulted in good. Listen, there was a, a woman that I met about a year ago in a distant state. We were at a certain gathering, and she said, she said, uh, I was married to my husband for 20 years, and he was an unbeliever. But then God saved him. As she pondered that passage in 1 Corinthians 7, how do you know, woman, whether or not you will save your husband? And after 20 years of being in a very undesirable relationship, she was keeping her vow, till death do we part. She said, God saved him. He had 25 beers of the finest wine in my life together with this man. What I'm saying is, our duty is always to obey God and leave the outcome with his sovereign workings. Because God is able to take our watery jars of obedience and turn it into the finest of wine. And I encourage you to take the advice of Mary as she spoke to the steward at the wedding at Cana. And she said to him, whatever he says, do it. Word.
his word. Whatever he says, do it. Trust this miracle worker to change your obedience into blessing. So that's the, that's the upshot of this passage and some practical applications. And above all, just consider how none of us have an immunity against sin in our lives. I don't care if you had a Christian upbringing like the Jews had a godly upbringing. I don't care if you have church membership. I don't care if you have a consistent devotion life. All that matters is that you would believe in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah and you would trust him as your lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And if the wrath of God would pass over you in the day of judgment, you'd have the blood of Jesus smeared in the forehead of your soul. And the last day, the wrath of God will pass over. So I'm just saying to you, believe in the Lord Jesus. Jew, Gentile, churchgoer, non-churchgoer, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would be merciful